Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I made an offhanded comment last Sunday that was about as egregious a statement as anyone can make. I don't know if you noticed it. I certainly did after I said it. I said that I could explain the entire Levitical system of the Old Testament in five minutes. You remember that? Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was a zinger. That's a lie. Such a summary in so short a time is impossible, so you'll forgive me for that, I hope. Still, I did try to get at the mechanism of the ancient religious legal system of the Judaic people. The Hebrew construction of sacrifice and ritual and what seems to be like constant bloodletting was not about appeasing an angry God. It wasn't driven by fear. It was driven by a desire for intimacy. It was a search for God, to draw close to God, to be near God without being consumed by His altogether alien presence. And I concluded last week by saying that Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. Because we've misunderstood. Jesus entered the human construct of His time as the face of God. Coming to humanity and saying, essentially, I'll do it your way. I will enter into your system. I will assume your conclusions about God. I'll meet you at the place of your understanding and on your terms. So we see that God has moved in our direction, revealing what has been true all along. That no more blood is required to try to get to God. For God in Christ has shed His own blood to get to us. Using a human body, using human constructed religion, playing by our rules, meeting us on our terms and on our grounds. Making one last sacrifice that we might be able to see that no more sacrifice is needed. So I'm going to pick up right there today. As we continue this exploration about the meaning of the cross and how the death of cross, the death of Jesus reveals the love of God. And I'm going to make another outlandish statement. Maybe even more outrageous than last week's. I am going to summarize in the next few minutes everything that is wrong with the world. You ready? Cindy and I, we get up every morning, and in that first quiet hour when it's early and dark, we drink our coffee. We read the news. We can't watch it anymore. It's too much. We just read it so you can control the speed at which it comes at you. And almost every morning she will read a few stories and then blurt out from her spot on the couch, what in the world is wrong 
with this world. Well, baby, I'm going to tell you everything right now. So either the next few moments will be insightful or I'm a megalomaniac who has lost his mind. Let's hope for the former, not the latter. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with humanity? Let's not use the word sin because that's far too generic. Let's not say human nature. That's too ambiguous. And we can't say, well, it's those people over there. They're the problem. Because when those people are gone, there will still be the same problems. The same problems that were here before those people arrived. We can't blame the devil or generalized evil. In a word, here it comes. All that is wrong with the world comes down to envy. Or if you prefer, jealousy. We all, all have this innate, natural desire. We want, we long for, we covet, we must have. We are an envious species, the only such species on this planet. And that doesn't sound all that bad. We all have wants and needs. But the problem is, it always seems that what we want and envy and covet is what somebody else already has. And we will then do anything to get it. The envy turns us into rivals, to fierce competitors. And when those rivalries go unresolved or burn out of control, we destroy ourselves, we destroy our relationships, we destroy our communities, we will destroy everything. I'm leaning hard today on the work of a man named Rene Girard. He died just a few years ago. He was one of those deep, Multidiscipline thinkers who only comes around every few centuries and within his mind, science and theology, philosophy and anthropology and sociology and psychology all came colliding together. And as he studied people and as he studied history and literature and as he studied the Bible, he came to what he called a mimetic theory. Mimetic is a Greek word, is where we get our word mime, to imitate. Humans are imitating animals. Toddlers learn to talk by imitating, right? We learn a foreign language by imitating. But imitation is not only the way we learn, it's also the way we fight. It's the way we compete. We envy, we want what our brother or neighbor has, and this is Gerard's explanation for the trouble of this world. All of our human upheaval and violence and greed and injustice, we desire what others have and we will do anything to get it. And I believe he is correct. But you don't have to be a French academic to come to this conclusion. A first century Jewish writer by the name of James, James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And that principle is fleshed out over history and, of course, 
in the Bible. Cain kills his brother Abel. The first murder in the first family. Why? Because Abel received the approval of God and Cain wanted it too, but he didn't want Abel to have it. So he kills him. He eliminates his rival. That is the beginning of human civilization. Cain went on to build the very first city, the first society, and it is accurate to say that culture from the very beginning is built on our violent rivalries. Jacob and Esau, Sarah and Hagar, Joseph and his brothers, Saul and David, everywhere you look in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is this constant threat that rivalry will destroy the nation. Now, Lest you think that this is only an ancient phenomenon now we are so properly evolved spiritually that we are immune to such a contagion. Well, may I point to you to a few more modern examples and this will begin to make sense. Per theologian Michelle Cayley placed this theory, quote, of imitation, envy, and rivalry into the context of a stereotypical group of middle school aged girls. If two of the girls in that group become rivals, all other girls in that group will be forced to take sides. To choose one friend over the other. And that rivalry, if not resolved, will tear the entire group apart. I'll show you how envy works in our own congregation. You didn't even know we needed padded chairs until you sat on one. Nobody has ever said a stinking word to me about a padded chair until we get the... Oh, they got padded chairs. Why can't we have some? (laughs) Renee Girard, you're welcome. (laughs) A little more seriously, look at our own political discourse in this country. It's not that we have lost civility. We have become such fierce rivals that we have forgotten what most of our arguments are about in the first place. We only want the other side to lose, even if we can't win, so long as they don't get the power, because it cannot be shared. And if this rivalry is not diffused, it will be impossible for we as a people to remain cohesive. We will tear ourselves apart. A little boy, four or five years old, he finds a ratty stuffed animal in the bottom of a toy box in his pre-K class. No one has even seen this little animal for weeks. And he pulls it out of the bottom of the toy box. And his eyes of desire land upon it. And he pulls it close to his chest. Every child in the room will want that toy. And it doesn't matter if there are 200 newfangled gadgets laying everywhere on the floor. The gladiator games will begin. Until the teacher has to intervene to defuse it and take it away from everyone. Are you listening? Does this make sense to you? Or, Nicholas and Jessica, young successful professionals that they are from Alpharetta, Georgia, or Franklin, Tennessee if you like. They vacationed for years along 30A's beautiful beaches. And then one day they achieve their dream and they buy a house in one of South Walton's planned communities and they're so happy. But then Chad and Veronica want the same thing. And then Sean and Lucy do too. And they all start building houses and it's so beautifully utopian. They are neighbors back home and now they're neighbors here until the original couple realizes that their friends are building larger homes than theirs. With better views. 
I'm describing everything that's happening on 30A right now. With better beach access, they begin to resent their friends for moving in on them. Or more likely, they sell the first house to buy a bigger house in Alice Beach instead of Seaside because that's where all the cool kids are now. Mortgage payments be damned. And before you know it, there's a litany of broken friendships, divorces, bankruptcies, so on and so forth. Keeping up with the Joneses is another word for mimetic theory. Imitation. Jealousy. Envy. And then there is the neurotic controlling husband who finally so alienates and bullies his wife that he loses her. She divorces him. She tries to move on with her life. But what does he do? He is so jealous, so neurotically possessive that he cannot bear the thought first of being rejected and second of her being with someone else. So he will harass her. He will stalk her. He might even kill her. He would rather take her life and go to jail for the rest of his than to succumb to a rival. This works geopolitically as well. A firebrand in the 1930s convinces an entire nation that one little group of people is the source of all their problems. And the greatest holocaust the world has ever seen is committed. A despotic ruler, an arrogant strong man looks to his weaker neighbor A neighbor with rich natural resources, a neighbor he is jealous of, a neighbor that he could never tolerate making friends with the West, whose growing independence he cannot abide, and so Vladimir Putin invades and lays waste to the Ukraine. It is this envious, mimetic rivalry rivalry from the beginning until now, from the top to the bottom, the human condition that makes everything in the world go wrong. You don't have to be a philosopher, you don't have to be a theologian, a social scientist, an anthropologist to see the merits of this argument. It is basic and it is everywhere we look. And I say again, if these rivalries and the resulting violence and chaos aren't resolved, we will destroy ourselves. There it is. Everything that's wrong with the world. Now, how do we reach some kind of resolution? How do we diffuse this constant envy? Religion has always used sacrifice. Humanity has always used sacrifice. It's what Gerard in the Old Testament calls scapegoating. Last week I spoke about the two goats offered on the Day of Atonement. One goat is sacrificed in order to enter God's presence. The other, the goat that escapes, the scapegoat, ceremoniously carries the sins of the nations away after the priest puts his hands on that goat's head, transfers, as it were, the sins of an entire year of the nation onto the goat, and then they get rid of him. And what that was, was this massive restart. All of our resentments, all of our anger, all of our our hatred, all of our unhealthy competition, now it's got to go, and we get to start over. And it pulls the cork on the pressure of the society so that they could begin again. The Jewish people built all kinds of things in like this. Every seven years, they'd let their land rest. Every 50 years, they would forgive all debts. Imagine if that happened in this country. So they had this mechanism, and they were very savvy about it, about trying to keep the resentment down in their society so that they as a people could survive. This whole idea of sending the goat away was not about getting close to God or so God wouldn't be angry. It was so they could live with each other. It was a mechanism to survive 
socially. And so, religion does this. Somebody, something, some scapegoat, when it gets really tough in a society and it's about to pull itself apart, somebody's got to pay. Have you ever noticed, another one more practical example, how a common enemy will unite those on the verge of becoming enemies themselves? Do you remember in the days after September 11th, we said things like this, gosh, God, that was awful. But I have never seen the country so united. Well, do you know why? We had a place, a person, a group of people, a country, an outsider, where all of our resentments that are usually turned on each other, we could turn all of those in unison to the outside, for good or bad, evil or not, and we could focus all of that hatred somewhere else and as strange as it sounds it made our society a little healthier for a while maybe not but we weren't using it on each other is this making sense at all now join Jesus during the week of his passion you would be hard pressed to find a more volatile dangerous time than these days in Jerusalem Jesus has come to town and it has the religious leaders in a jam They are protecting their power, their place. They are trying to keep the Romans at bay. And they see Jesus as this existential threat. And they succeed in making him such a scapegoat. Such a target of animosity that the entire society turns against him in a matter of days. He comes in on Palm Sunday and the crowds could not be happier. And by Good Friday, the same crowds want him dead. Because the religious leaders turned against him, they turned Herod against him, they turned Pilate against him, they turned the crowds against him, they succeeded in turning his own disciples against him. They succeeded so fully that the thieves hanging on their own crosses turn against him. Has anyone ever been so rejected? Jesus became that scapegoat to pull away all that resentment and sin and anger and envy. And they could come to the conclusion as Good Friday closes, well, we got rid of that guy and now all of our troubles are over. Caiaphas, the high priest who presided over the trial, unwittingly explained the entire mechanism of scapegoating Jesus with perfection. Unwittingly, he says this, it's better that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And there it is. That is what Jesus did. Caiaphas was thinking about saving his own skin, keeping his cushy job and his powerful position. He wasn't thinking about an atonement, but he told the truth nonetheless. Understanding that one person's death could and would diffuse the violence. This one person dying, even if he is innocent, will keep us from destroying ourselves. And this is a wrinkle to the cross that maybe we haven't considered properly. There is so much violence and anger at the cross. There is so much blood and wrath. And none of it 
belongs to God. To whom does it belong? It belongs to us. It's humanity that killed Jesus. It is humanity's wrath that must be appeased. It is our violence that is seeking a corrective target. It is our bloodlust that must be satisfied. Our anger which must be assuaged. Not God's. Because God is not the problem with this world. We are. We are. And all of this projection about God is angry and God's... That is our anger. That is our desire for revenge. Being projected out. Onto the cross. So that somehow, way, we could avoid looking at our own hearts and seeing that truly we are, at the heart of who we are, often very violent and angry people. And if you don't believe that, try writing down 30A tomorrow morning. <laughs> God was saying this. I'm almost finished. I know you need a place to register and to relieve your grievances. Or you will continue to kill each other over and over. I know you need to offload the burden of simply being a human. Of being that unique species, the only one on this planet that is committed to revenge. I know you are capable of envy and hatred and violence. The very worst. So put it on me. I'll bear it. I'll give it a resting place. Because if someone must take the blame for all of your rivalry and its sinful results, if somebody has to die in order for you to find peace, then let it be me. I'll do it. Because you deserve better than what you have had. See, for years I imagined that the conversation between God and Jesus when they were hatching out the plan of the cross went something like this. Well, son, those evil bastards down there deserve to die. And you know, with all these rules I made, somebody's going to have to die. And Jesus says, yeah. And God says, yes. And after thinking about it, it's going to be you. Sorry, but it's the only way. And Jesus, the obedient and good son, says, okay. But now, I imagine that conversation differently. Son, these poor, beloved souls can't seem to get out of their own way. They think that sacrifice and killing will bring them peace. They really think somebody has to die. And Jesus says, well, maybe we should help them see things differently. Maybe we should help them see us differently. To which God says, child, if you go down there, you know they will kill you. And Jesus says, probably. But it's the only way. You see how different that is? Radically different. And it's here that Jesus takes our normal, usual, murderous way of resolving what is wrong with the world and He enters it and He turns it on its head and the words of Hebrews 10 ring more true today than they ever have than I have ever heard them in my life. When Christ 
came into the world, he said to God, No, you are not pleased with animal sacrifices and offerings for sin. So, my God, I have come to do what you want. By his one sacrifice, he has forever set people free from sin. When sins are forgiven, there is no more need to offer sacrifice. This is the end of all violent atonements. It was never God's intent in the first place. This is the end of our failed, useless cycles of trying to treat our resentments that will never work. This is the end of religion. Because they are all humanly constructed inventions anyway, attempting to do the impossible. This is the salvation of our souls, for we are saved from ourselves. And this is the cure for what is wrong with the world. And we say, thanks be to God. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.